0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Dr. Pennington has recently written Jesus the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Um, And this is with Brazos Press. Um, And this is a a book that's under $20, which would probably make it one of the cheaper cheaper books um, that I've ever had a conversation on. Um, here and on the podcast, usually they're a little bit more expensive. So um, I really enjoy this book. I think others might as well. Um, and so uh, we will make this. Uh, so you know, so listen to this podcast and and maybe think about going out and get it. Um, I also think I'm going to do a giveaway. Uh, so I'm going to make this book a um, uh, available to someone uh, who I'm going to do some retweeting um, and reposting on Facebook and. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll give away the copy that Brazos Press gave to me. So thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for that. I also wanted to thank Ed Murphy for his kind email, which we received uh, just the other day. Um, and Ed is living in Northern Ireland, um, and he's an Englishman, but he's living in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, and he just really appreciated, uh, especially the old format of the podcast. And uh, I've got good news for Ed. I think we are going to have uh, a few more episodes still with Tom and Trevor, um, although a lot of them will be conversations that I have with scholars. Uh, but but I just really appreciated Ed's taking the time to write this long letter. Um, and uh, yeah, we always gr- appreciate hearing from other Uh, from listeners, um, and so thanks, thanks Ed, for your your great uh, uh, compliment. We will have some other conversations forthcoming. Um, A few of them have been uh, messed up with my Zencaster, um, so sorry about the delay. Uh, But we appreciate you listening, and here's my conversation with Dr. Pennington. Well, um... Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll kind of re-record the in- the beginning. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's great. Uh, so I, well, uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Uh, Jonathan Pennington this afternoon to come on the podcast. Um, and uh, Dr. Pennington is the professor of New Testament and also pastor of spiritual formation and a teaching pastor at Sojourn East in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, okay. And he wrote a work called Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life, uh, with uh, be- uh, Brezos Press. Um, and so uh, welcome, Dr. Pennington.
1: Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. And I, I was aware of your research for other reasons, but um, I, sh- I should say one of the reasons that I had you on, though, is we've kind of been doing a series on the podcast uh, looking at various sort of philosophical um, sort of approaches to Scripture or uh, the ways in which philosophy intersects with Christian interpretation, Um, So I was uh, the podcast I just released uh, that listeners uh, might have heard was with Drew Johnson, who wrote a book called Biblical Philosophy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) A, A dear old friend as well. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah. And I learned a lot from him. His, was, his work was very provocative. Um, mm-hmm. and I get, I kind of gave him a little, uh, a little bit of like a hard, uh, a patristic response, I guess, almost not too hard, but like, I was like, okay, as a patristic scholar who deals a lot with sort of Greek philosophical influences, um, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with that kind of interpretive tradition? Um, and cause Drew's is a very, uh, has a very strong position about the bible in its own right um, as a philosophical mm. text and i had never heard it pu- put in quite those terms so i was trying to wrap my brain around that a little bit like okay you know i do often think about how do we incorporate the bible within a larger sort of conversation with mm. like you know sort of a- almost more like what uh, your work actually um i'm often thinking about eudaimonia or the good life um, and sort of those kind of concepts. But Drew is really, uh, adamant about like, you know, sort of letting, letting the scripture set the table even, uh, for some of those questions, which I don't think is antagonistic to what you would say. Um, but it's, it was interesting. I, I, I yeah, it was really thought provoking and he suggested I talk to you about this too. So.
1: Well, I'm so glad. Yeah. He and I get to hang out some and it's, it's fun now. And of course, in this book, I do the first part or the second part is an argument that the Bible is a philosophy, but I am trying to put it into this larger context as well. You're right.
0: Yeah. So like I said, I didn't think you would be an in, in antagonism at all towards this, but, uh, also I, I like this book because, um, I, and I, I suspect this would be part of, um, even your own desire in writing it and even your position. Um, so you were telling me that you transitioned to this position of spiritual formation at your church, but this is also a book that is probably, uh, it's, it's more available to a wider audience, both financially and, um, just at the <laughs> level like just in how you're pitching your argument. Um, and so a lot, some of the people I interview on here, like I had my friend Ben on and his book was like $120 with, uh, whatever Cambridge, uh, no, that was Catholic you, but it's an expensive right. book. Um, totally, and so it's, totally. that's not really one where I could tell people to go out and buy, but this is a great book, uh, for people that uh, are listening to the podcast who want to, uh, think philosophically with the scriptures. Um, so I was excited to have you on to sort of um, walk us through that a little bit.
1: Thanks, and I, I've written expensive big books as well, and uh, <laughs> this was very intentionally not that. And uh, it was nice to be able to, you know, start with Ron Swanson and uh, have Steve Martin appear <laughs> along with Justin Martyr and all those. So that, yeah, I haven't done that in my other academic books. So this is this is uh, fun for me too.
0: Great. Well, my first question that I sent to Dr. Pennington uh, was, uh, "Why do so many Christians ignore the philosophical implications of the Bible and even Jesus as philosopher?"
1: Yeah. Well, this is, you know, part of my own journey of coming to understand because I think, like most people in our culture and time, philosophy is kind of a bad word. Or, you know, if if you're not in the academic world, it means unhelpful, you know, like ivory tower, like, uh, not, not really helpful. You know, the old joke about, you know, my dad has a PhD as a doctor, but he's not the kind of doctor that actually helps people, you know, like a medical doctor, you know? So, so I think philosophy for most people in general society is not a very positive term. Uh, and so, uh, however, as you well know, and as I suggest in the book, uh, this was a very common way that, Christians, early Christians understood the faith as a philosophy and as Jesus as a philosopher. So for me, it was, you know, I kind of came to it through other work I was doing on the Sermon on the Mount, but for me, it was, uh, it was kind of a rediscovery Of that philosophy is not a bad thing. In fact, philosophy is a wonderful thing. And if we understand it in the ancient sense, not in the modern sense of it. So I think it, it is a bit of an uphill battle to kind of rediscover the goodness of philosophy. That's what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah. Well, that's
0: great, um, and and I I notice in your footnotes you do mention Pierre Hadot, and this will kind of dovetail mm-hmm. with what something you just said. But how how is philosophy different um, in the ancient world than in the modern world? What what do we get wrong? How how have we gotten our uh, our sort of word twisted around?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I always like to say, you had me at Addo, right? In the sense of uh, <laughs> that, that that book was really a turning point for me. Uh, it was one of the earlier books I read on this journey uh, of kind of rediscovering uh, Christianity as a philosophy and Jesus as a philosopher, because what uh, Pierre Addo talks about is that ancient philosophy was extremely different. It was extremely practical and really meant to help people learn how to live well. Uh, one of his big arguments is that and he's not writing necessarily from a christian perspective he's really just a scholar of ancient philosophy although he talks about christianity a fair amount in that context as well but but his point is that you know we have this distorted sense of what aristotle and plato and socrates were about we have the sense that these were these guys kind of These are my terms, you know, lying around on couches, people dropping grapes into their mouths and thinking, you know, what is the nature of a horse? And, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? You know, all these kind of or if, you know, three people are in a lifeboat, which one do you eat first? You know, these kind of these these kind of modern versions of philosophy, you know, where what is the nature of existence? Where he says, you know, they did care about those things. They did ask those kind of questions, some of those questions, but they always did it for a purpose, which is say, how do you live well? They didn't do it so that you could just have a bunch of interesting thoughts to you know, impress people with at a dinner party or something. They did it so that you could be really practical, like, what does it mean to pursue the good? And how do you actually handle emotions? And how do you think about relationships? And so for me, that Pierre uh, Do's work was really, really important to kind of say, oh, that's what philosophy was in the age world. It was so different than, than philosophy in the modern academy. So that was a super helpful book for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I like to think of when I'm talking about the intersection of philosophy and religion uh, and theology is that, you know, for like uh, even Macrina was called a great philosopher by, uh, by the um, Cappadocians. And, and part of this is because of the way that she lived her life. Um, mm-hmm. And so she had a philosophical way of life, uh, which sort of sounds strange to modern ears. Um, mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's just like you're talking about, it's almost as if uh, it's sort of almost closer to modern science psychology in some respects in that psychologists are trying to help people be well adjusted. And what are the things that they're going to do? And, um, and some of these things come into play for ancient philosophy in ways that, that we often ignore at our peril.
1: You know, that that's true. It is. I mean, I, and that's what I wrestle with. Like, what is the, what's the comparable thing today? And, there isn't really anything in modern Western culture that exactly matches what an ancient philosopher was because it was more comprehensive. And I, I suggest that on the one hand, we have kind of gurus like Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett on finances or Patrick Lencioni on leadership or Oprah on who knows what, what books to read or whatever. And then we have psychologists and therapists who kind of help us, but What's different between an ancient philosopher and a modern therapist, which I think therapy is great and counseling is great. What's different is that, that those modern therapists and counselors rarely have a metaphysic or they rarely have like mm. a, mm-hmm. a comprehensive understanding of the world. Instead, they just kind of have this piecemeal pro tips or you know maybe some psychosocial theory about human development, which is great. But it rarely would try to make a claim about the nature of reality itself, you know, but that's what the ancients did. They really said, okay, here's the nature of reality and therefore here's the good and how to pursue it. And that here are some practical ways to do it. It's truly a comprehensive kind of approach to, to how to live life so much more than any individual uh, type of person does for modern Westerners, I think.
0: Yeah. Very, very well said. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if, uh, you know, you have, to, yeah, you have to put a bunch of different categories together um, totally. and, yeah. and, and Jordan and Peterson and uh, Steve
1: Martin and Ron Swanson and Oprah, <laughs> if you could like have them all amalgamate into one person, that's what Aristotle was kind of thing, you know?
0: Yeah, very good. Well, and then that also sort of calls into question what we understand by religion. So I think part of what the book that you're writing, too, is to help even people who consider themselves, quote unquote, religious. It's not just about how do I get to heaven when I die? Like it's it's what do you do while you're here? Um, and and so, you know, so I think like we can also have a too small view of religion as if religion doesn't uh, as if Christianity, if, if we want to call it a religion it, and uh, and in some ways that's even limiting itself um, and, and that it is it answers a whole host of greater questions than simply what so, so-called religious questions. So I think is, is that fair? That's part of what this is trying to get at. Like,
1: absolutely. Yeah. In fact, religions in the ancient world, it's, it's complicated, but they were were ways of being. At least many mm-hmm. of them were. There were there were cultic religious things that were just practices that you went and did for sure. But what a religion in the ancient world was not what well, we typically think of today as like a, a set of cognitive beliefs and then just a set of morals or something. For mm-hmm. them, they would have thought of a religion in these more ancient philosophical terms as a whole way of seeing and being in the world. Or would I would like to describe a way of inhabiting the world. It's, you know, it's more complicated than that. I know if there are scholars listening, they'll recognize that actually the <laughs> philosophers made a distinction between what they were doing and religions. But nonetheless, I think those are still closer to the, we tend to think of religion in this, I, I described in the book as only in the vertical realm as my relationship mm-hmm. with God where philosophy was both vertical but also horizontal, like how do you live in society, how do you structure relationships, and that that, that it's that more comprehensive for, sort of view of Christianity.
0: Uh, that, yeah, that's very helpful.
1: Um, so
0: moving into kind of some defining terms, uh, some of the words that come up for you are eudaimonia or the good life. And so why are those important phrases for understanding uh, ancient philosophy, broadly speaking?
1: Yeah, it's so important. I mean, this is exactly why you philosophized in the ancient world because you were trying to figure out really what is the greatest human question? How do you really thrive? And really, every ancient religion, every ancient philosophy is trying to answer that. They're saying whether it's Baal fertility gods, you know, or, or practices to make Baal happy or other Akkadian religions or something, or if it's you know, uh, a a Roman or Greek mythology or a Roman or Greek philosophy, everybody's asking the same question. How do you really find flourishing? How do we build a society that flourishes and how do we live as individuals and in communal relationships that flourish? And so that's what eudaimonia is about. I mean, that's Aristotle's term for it, not only his, but that's his big term uh, that drives his entire ethical view uh, as well as a lot of other Greek and then later Roman people too. And I, my argument is that actually the Bible cares about the exact same thing. Now, the answer the Bible gives to what true eudaimonia or human flourishing is, is different in a lot of ways from other ancient religions and philosophies, but it's asking the exact same question. It's seeking to answer that in its own particular way. That's big, a big part of what I'm trying to suggest in the book. Yeah. Very good.
0: Um so one one like and just kind of uh diving into one little particular section one of the ways in which they uh, that you engage sort of um uh, ancient uh philosophy and bring it into conversation with Christianity is on this question of emotions. Um mm-hmm. and so uh how how can the Christian bring together ancient views on emotions uh, with the scriptures to have a more holistic under, understanding of of these emotions, so I think some I think you talk about how we can be kind of reductive about these. Some they're like sort of all bad or all good. Uh, but mm. but what what is it? What is it that, that that scripture has to offer us um, as we think about flourishing even in our emotions? So in our kind of non cognitive realm, another area that we might not think that philosophy uh, right.
1: speaks to, but it certainly does. Yeah, such a great question. And really, those chapters in the book, there's a couple chapters in the book uh, that deal with emotions. Uh, Those were, in a lot of ways, the most fun uh, for me to write and the most life-giving because they're so practical and they're also kind of intellectually stimulating at the same time. And they really result from what was a shocking thing for me to learn that ancient philosophy, one of the major topics in ancient philosophy was emotions. Like, again, you wouldn't think that way because when we think philosophy today, again, you know, I think of like my philosophy professors at the university I went to, you know, where they're just saying, you know, again, what is the nature of a chair and how do you know chairs exist when you leave the room? You know, they didn't have anything to do with like the real practical issues of like, what are, what are emotions and how do I, What do I do when I'm feeling angry or jealous or something? But this is precisely one of the biggest areas of interest for ancient philosophers because they cared about human flourishing. And so they realized to live well, you've got to figure out what are these things that we have that are making us do all kinds of good and stupid stuff. You know, these things that we call emotions. And so the different philosophical schools had very distinct visions and theories about what emotions were, whether they were like these humors or these liquids in your body that cause you to do different things based on the makeup, or whether they were things that were a function of learning to to think in a certain way. And there's all these different kinds of debates. Even as today, people are going to define uh, emotions differently psychologists are going to tend to define them one way neurologists are going to define them more chemically you know and there's debates even today and the point is that it's actually quite instructive to go back to the ancient philosophers and say what did they say about emotions and how to handle them and then so I do that in one chapter and then to, and to go to modern people and say what do they say as well but then to turn to the bible because if the Bible is itself a philosophy of life, not just a vertical religion, but a whole philosophy of life, it's quite remarkable to see the Bible has a, an incredibly thoughtful, you might even say sophisticated view of what emotions are, not, not denying their reality, not minimizing them, nor you know, just saying, hey, whatever you feel is just where you are or something. There's this very thoughtful teaching Old Testament and New Testament Hebrew scriptures and, and apostolic teachings that talk a lot about emotions and both affirm their importance morally and their importance as part of the human experience. Part of what it means to be human is to have emotions and also exhort us to learn, to educate them, to learn to shape them in certain ways so that we might experience true human flourishing. So for me, it was really a joy to, to dig into the kind of intellectual side of what are emotions theoretically, and then to turn to the Bible again and see, wow, the Bible is like super thoughtful about what emotions are and, and very practical too, about how to sort of think about them, like Jesus teachings about anxiety and how to process anxiety and these kind of things. And then the Psalter, I mean, that's the most obvious part. You have this Big book in the very middle of the Bible that is just chock full of all kinds of emotions, and pro and people processing their emotions. So for me, those were, those chapters were really, really uh, joyful uh, to and and stimulating to to work on.
0: Yeah. Well, one one word that caught my uh, attention while you were speaking was "sophisticated," and that was a word that yeah. uh, Drew uh, kind of leaned on in a few different times in our conversation about uh, taking the Bible as a sophisticated document. So I think uh, I I don't know if yeah if if, if there's cross pollination in your work there. Uh, there probably is some yeah. Him,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there there's probably uh, we he we he and I talk a lot. Yeah, so there probably is some uh, pollination there.
0: Yeah, well that's yeah, that's great. It also reminds me too as uh you know as a patristic scholar uh the letter of uh Marcel letter to Marcellinus from uh from Athanasius of Alexandria and it's on the Psalms and part of what he's doing is he basically is teaching this person uh, there's we're not exactly sure who's there but Uh, it's, it's this, he has this imagined sage who basically tells you, how do you read the Psalms in a way that helps you
1: regulate your emotions? Um, Oh, I (laughs) wish I would have known that. That would have been great to look at. I do not know that at all. (laughs) That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: he has some really insightful things to say about how the Psalter contains the entirety of human emotion and how the Psalter can give you the words so that you can process through the stuff that you're going through. Um, it's, uh, yeah, sort of some deep wisdom from, uh, from Mathanasius.
1: And that's wonderful. I would love to get the uh, full link on that. I'd love to see that. And you know, what, what strikes me about that is, I mean, that's what a good therapist or psychologist would do today right is is sort of i think a good balanced therapist would both affirm the importance of human emotions and also teach you how to process them so you might experience human flourishing lo and behold the christian tradition was already <laughs> doing that you know 1600 years ago 17 1800 years ago so that's really neat yeah that's great
0: yeah well uh, i i i could definitely send you a link uh and hopefully my book with saint vlad's will be out in the spring that i, I translated that is one of the things that i oh, did oh wonderful uh, yeah yeah so
1: great yeah i'd love to see that
0: um good good. Well, uh so one of my ch- uh change gears kind of questions, uh something my uh, my sister does some marketing. She said you need to have a unique question that you ask people. <laughs> um and <laughs> So she so my my unique question is, what is one thing that you once thought was true, but now think is false, or once thought was false, and you now think is true. And I say it can relate to the research on the book. um, Or if you want to give me something uh, a little bit broader than that. uh, But but sometimes it's a fun question just to see like, you know, what is it in, as we're doing research as scholars and thinkers, what are the things that make us change our mind and why, you know, and how how does that process kind of happen?
1: Yeah, that is an interesting question. Good job, marketing sister. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, I guess I'll just keep it on this topic um, Yeah. because it'd be easier for me. And that is, I guess, to recognize that, happiness, which again is kind of a weak word in English, but flourishing or satisfaction or whatever it is, that that is actually something that is really central to the Bible's message. I think that would be, I don't know that I would have denied that before, but I wouldn't have been inclined to think that as I think a lot of other Christians would probably be in the same boat I was in before, which is to say you know, when we think of Jesus's teachings, we think of him saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, suffer. And so I think a lot of times people read those true teachings of Jesus and assume then that the Christian life is one that is um, either not interested in flourishing and happiness or even opposed to it. Um, mm-hmm. And so again, I don't know that I would have said yeah, I'm going to die on that hill before, but I think I would have just had that default setting that, you know, being concerned about my own flourishing and happiness, that's kind of self-centered. That's not what Jesus taught. But in the course of many years of study, including on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I came to see this is exactly what he's talking about. Now, the answer he gives, as I alluded to before, about what true happiness looks like is pretty shocking because it actually Mm -hmm. entails suffering. Um, But it's still really focusing on that. So I think for me, that was a real turning point. And that's really why I wrote this book is to try to kind of help other Christians or non-Christians too, to just kind of see, you know what, the Bible is really addressing this fundamental human question in a way that I didn't think it did before.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I had Tyler Whitman on, and I think he said something oh, about an yeah. ice rink. He said something about where he went to undergrad because it had a hockey rink, and he wasn't—he was going to go somewhere else, and he changed his mind about where he went to undergrad because he really liked the hockey rink at Boulder. I think's where he went. Uh, or okay,
1: well, that's a little <laughs> bit more interesting answer than mine. Mine sounded like just a book—a book advertisement. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's what no, you're leaning no, no. For. something that's a little what, that's bit more what... personal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no 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 i i'm looking for what you did i just always think that one's funny and i figured you'd probably know tyler uh because he was at southern uh, very for well. a while
1: he was he very well and yeah. uh and then uh but partly my encouragement he followed me many years later to st andrews and i'm very glad he did he got to be one of john webster's final students which was great and tyler tyler's wonderful i, I love him that's great
0: yeah It also turns out that his sister uh, was roommates with my wife in college. Uh Ah, neat.
1: Okay, neat.
0: (laughs) Um, Very good. Uh, So how, uh, got a few more questions here. Don't want to take up uh, too much of your time, but how is a biblical understanding of philosophy broadly considered uh, different from a sort of secular point of view?
1: Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to things I said earlier that if you mean by a secular view of philosophy, is that what you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. That I think, uh, well, it kind of depends on wh- whose philosophy you're talking about. If you're talking about yeah, academic, ph- <laughs> academic philosophy, <laughs> yeah. it it is pretty removed um, from what I'm suggesting the that Christianity is really about the ivory tower kind of philosophy. That today modern philosophy academically focuses primarily on epistemology: how do you know things? Mm-hmm some on aesthetics, um, a lot of political philosophy. Uh, And those things are not um, absent from the biblical witness, but all of those, again, serve towards this more ancient sense of how do you be truly happy? So that's the big contrast, I think. The the reality is, though, there are philosophers uh, out there that are doing something more like Christianity, um, even with some differences, though. I would think of like Jordan Peterson, if you know that is, he's a technically a psychologist, but he really, you know, international bestseller of the 12 rules of life, et cetera. He's, I think the closest thing you'd have to kind of a modern philosopher in the ancient sense, or one of my very favorite people, Alain de Botton, B-O-T-T-O-N, who I talk about in the book as well. He's a very practical, modern philosopher who writes books on love and relationships and work. And what I discovered in the course of this book through some friends, actually, is that in France, in modern France, philosophers there are often actually much more oriented towards practical life. Uh, even academic philosophers there, like there's kind of like they have an outward facing practical thing that is not the case in contin- the rest of continental or American academic philosophy. So I think there are, that's why I said it kind of depends on which secular philosophy you mean. I think there are some secular philosophers who are doing a little bit more of this uh, in in the way that Christianity, I think, is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, I think yeah, I've heard sort of public philosopher is almost a position in France, Um, and I can't imagine public philosopher really. You know, that just doesn't have any uh, a ring to it in the American context.
1: Um, Maybe public thinker,
0: public intellectual, but public philosopher, not really.
1: Right. Yeah. The French tradition is really – and Pierre Audeau is part of that in the sense that yeah, he was just yeah. an earlier generation of that. But it, it for some reason, they've kept that sort of role in society that I think is super helpful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, last thing. Um, <laughs> so you do an interesting sort of reading of the Beatitudes towards the end of the book. How does thinking philosophically help us understand Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount? Um, so, sort of engage. So, this is sort of Jesus getting closer to a philosopher in some ways. What, how does that help us see that in a new light?
1: Well, that's how I came to all of this. I mean, this book and these ideas are really the extension of my work on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I was working, I'm a Matthew scholar by training, and then spent have spent a lot of time working in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew chapters five to seven, and then wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, and that is where it all first started to come to make sense to mm-hmm. me is that Jesus's teachings in the sermon are very much wisdom oriented including the beatitudes these which is the latin word for happy <laughs> or the latin word for flourishing the reason we call them beatitudes is because they're statements of Jesus as a sage a wisdom teacher a philosopher if you will teaching what the nature of true happiness is and it's striking that the first teaching of Jesus in the first book of the New Testament. So the first teaching of Jesus in the New Testament are nine statements, nine poetic statements about what the nature of true human flourishing is. And so that kind of sets us off right in the beginning of the New Testament to understand Jesus as a philosopher. And so for me, that, that was really a crucial turning point is coming to understand the Beatitudes as the technical term for them is makarisms. That is statements about makariosness or mm-hmm. flourishing. And as you probably know, the Greek word makarios is basically a synonym for eudaimonia. Uh, by the first mm-hmm. century, it's it's the word that's used um, to describe how to be truly flourishing.
0: Yeah yeah that's 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 really great and I, i'm actually given a paper at ets on uh the psalm one and christian early christian interpretations Ooh. of psalm one so blessed is the man makarios um and it uh, exactly so it's sort of interesting to see how the christians take that but one of them is uh is Theodoret of cyrus a sort of late antiochene so-called and he takes that and he says and he connects it to the beatitudes and he says uh but if christ is the one who is uh is beatus is makarios uh then uh, he it, those of us who participate and share in christ's nature as christians are also blessed so he is but you know so he sort of talks about this and and actually it's kind of fascinating he uses a kind of the language of theosis um which you wouldn't expect the language of divin like deification um and uh, from an antiochene um so it's. It's sort of interesting, but he says that because Christ is called that, uh, we can have a share in that title. Um, So he sort of uh, goes goes in, you know, it's even more like a lot of what we talked about is sort of like, actions and ways of acting in the world uh but part of what he's trying to get at is even christ helps us uh into those like you know so that is grace and that is uh you know sort of the other ways in which god also empowers us uh, to become these things that we aren't um and Absolutely. so I, I thought that was sort of in sort of an interesting uh way to think about that but um it's really yeah. good Psalm so anyway, one is I,
1: definitely- Psalm one is definitely underneath the Beatitudes, you know, and and as you probably know, it, it relates to the two ways theme of wisdom. You see it in Proverbs Mm -hmm. one to nine, you see in the Didache, there's, there's the, the way of wisdom teaching is always that there's one way that will result in flourishing one way that will result in destruction. So choose, you know, which Mm -hmm. my son, it's a a father saying to a son, a lot of times choose which way is going to result in, in the blessed life. And, and I think that's exactly what's going on in the Beatitudes. Yeah
0: well uh very good i uh, really appreciate you taking the time and uh and it's been a pleasure talking with you and i'm i'm i really enjoyed the book um i am also a huge ron swanson fan uh, so that was <laughs> uh, uh that was kind of fun to see the the connection there so um thanks again dr pennington for coming on the show and writing this book and um yeah i think uh you know it's it, one i'm teaching a class where we uh, do philosophy and theology together. Um, and so there's well, like at the same time. So it might be a good crossover book, uh, for us to sort of think through, uh, how, you know, the way that those two classes overlap.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for reading it and having me on. It's a great joy to discuss these things. Thank you.